1: ideas this is greg soden conversion therapy is the controversial practice of attempting to change someone's sexuality conversion therapy practices date back roughly 140 years in the united states but until recently the history of conversion therapy was underexplored academically there are many prominent figures in conversion therapy, such as Frank Worthin, Kent Philpot, and Leanne Payne, that you may have never heard of despite hearing about conversion therapy on the news or elsewhere. Many towns and states around the nation have been banning the practice in recent years, and occasionally, former conversion therapists publicly speak out against their past actions and practices in conversion therapy. One historian, Dr. Chris Babbitts, has been researching this history in recent years and is regularly publishing brief snippets of this history leading up to the publication of his forthcoming book. Dr. Chris Babbitts is an Andrew W. Mellon Engaged Scholar Initiative postdoctoral fellow at the University of Texas at Austin. He earned his PhD in history from UT Austin in May 2019. His work examines the intersections of religion, medicine, gender, and sexuality in the modern United States. His current In Progress Book Project, To Cure a Sinful Nation, A History of Conversion Therapy in the United States, will tell the 140-year comprehensive history of conversion therapy practices in the United States. While the book is in progress though, Babbitt's consistently is releasing shorter articles related to his dissertation findings. You can find his latest co-authored article, Changing Medical Practice, Not Patients, Putting an End to Conversion Therapy, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Furthermore, you can find his article, Leanne Payne and Gendered Cannibalism in the Ex-Gay Movement, in Quarterly Horse, a journal of brief American studies. On this episode, we largely discuss his in-review piece, Kent Philpot and the Charismatic Roots of Contemporary Conversion Therapy. Discussing the charismatic Christian connections to conversion therapy in the 1960s and 1970s. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Chris Babbitts, and I encourage you to find his work. You can find him on Twitter at ChrisBabbitts, B A B I T S, and at ChrisBabbitts.com. You can find me on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas or at Patreon.com slash Classical Ideas Podcast. Without further delay, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Chris Babbitts. Dr. Chris Babbitts, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself however you see fit?
0: Yeah, I am currently an Andrew W. Mellon Engage Scholar Initiative postdoctoral fellow at the University of Texas at Austin. Where I focus on the history of the modern United States, um, more particularly the intersecting histories of religion, gender and sexuality, and medicine.
1: Wonderful. Okay, so take me back in the day. What made you want to become a historian as a profession? Now,
0: history had always been my favorite subject to study um, from middle school into high school. Um, I did the classic Washington, D.C. trip uh, and really enjoyed. History, but at the college level, it became something much more of a passion. Uh, I never thought I was going to be the kind of person who could read a 600-page book in a week, Uh, but that's why I became at Clark University, where I got my BA and my MA, and uh, I was a a high school history teacher at a boarding school um, right after, which further fueled my passion to want to get a history PhD.
1: Wonderful. Um, So. You and I have been following each other's work for several years now. Um, I think I met you, I think it was in 2011 or 12, whenever I was at the University of Missouri, um, and you were in New York, and then you went on to do your PhD in history at the University of Texas in Austin. And I know that you are currently working on a book project based on your dissertation research, and I believe your working title is To Cure a Sinful Nation, a History of Conversion Therapy in the United States, correct? It is, yeah. Excellent. Can you tell me a little bit about the process of discovering that you wanted to research conversion therapy in the United States? What was that path like to discovering this passion subject uh, for you as a scholar?
0: Yeah, at the time that I applied to the University of Texas, I had a couple different interests that really stemmed from my time of teaching an all-boys school. And one of them was the history of gender and sexuality, particularly the history of masculinity. I had seen a lot of my young male students kind of struggle with what masculinity meant to them and, and kind of how they wanted to enact it, what, and, and, and kind of the, the typical struggles that you would expect of uh, teenage boys trying to uh, come to terms with who they are as people. And that was one side of it. But I've also always been interested in the history of religion. Uh, when I was at Clark, I really focused on slavery, abolition, and reform. And so I have this long history of being interested in religious reform movements in the United States. So I was trying to combine those two things Mm. as I was slowly moving into the 20th century and stumbling upon the history of conversion therapy uh, was really a stumble. It was something that I didn't really expect. Uh, I didn't have it in my statement of purpose for graduate school Uh, But working with my advisor, my first year at the University of Texas, we were looking at Catholic psychologists who are dealing with issues of masculinity, stumbled upon this therapist by the name of Dr. Joseph Nicolosi, um, who has since passed away, but I talked to him on the phone a couple times. um, And uh, we found that no one had really done a full sweeping history of sexual orientation change therapies in the United States. And at first, you know, you're a PhD student and you're thinking, oh, I totally have this wrong. <laughs> somebody has definitely done this. Yeah. Um, and still, sometimes I have the fear that somebody has done this sweeping thing. But I'm comforted by uh, book uh, reviewers, people who looked at my book proposal, who said that they couldn't believe that this was something that was missing too. So there's other smart people uh, who had seen this gap. And so, uh, you know, you do this typical write a research paper. I wrote a research paper on Catholic therapies, uh, Catholic based therapies uh, aimed at some kind of sexual orientation change in the 80s and 90s, and continued to pursue that. And I started to see a lot of connections um, between what we would call the Family Values Political Coalition um, that united evangelicals, Latter day Saints, Catholics and conservative and Orthodox Jews around sexual orientation change therapies. And at this point, this is when we knew it was big. This mm. is when we knew it was important because it broke down those kind of theological and doctrinal barriers, and people were starting to gravitate towards political issues, especially issues about gender and sexuality.
1: Interesting, okay. Um, well, that, that's like, like landing in a gold mine. You know, I mean, for you as a young scholar and a historian, like that is like winning the lottery, finding the gap in the literature that everybody is going to be, you know, intrigued to read about. So where did you go from there? Can you tell me a little bit about this research process? Because you said you found this in your first year of your PhD program, right? Yes. Okay. So then you had probably, was your program four years, five years?
0: I have finished it in
1: five. Okay, cool. So can you tell me a little bit about where you went from there once you realized that this could be something very big? um, Who did you talk to? Were you able to talk to anyone that you never would have predicted would talk to you about this? Um, How did that process go? Yeah, the
0: first thing that I did, and a lot of my friends like to joke that I must be a masochist that I did this, was I went to the living, breathing source of of conversion therapy now. I went to Uh, The Alliance for Therapeutic Choice and Scientific Integrity, which is an organization that uh, supports sexual orientation change efforts in the present day. And they're an organization that unites licensed therapists and also some religious-based counselors. And you can go there as as a paid attendee, which which is what I did in the University of Texas History Department, provided a research grant for me to do this three years. And I went and I literally talked to people like Joseph Nicolosi, um, who was alive for the three years that, uh, for the first two years that I went. And the last year that I went, uh, he had passed away earlier that year. Uh, I had talked to a whole range of different types of therapists, some who were a little bit older. So they had actually gone to medical school and then a psychiatric residency and still believed in the efficacy of sexual orientation change efforts that they worked with. Um, I talked to people who had gone to Liberty University for a master's of family counseling, pretty much, Um, some of whom uh, had been MD. There was one person who had been MD and then he did this. And I also talked to people who had gone through counseling of this sort and had testified to its success for them in their lives, which is a really interesting thing to try to grapple your head around. Uh, especially if you exist in the world of, uh, academia where, you know, it leans left generally and you're not expecting to come face to face with quote unquote success stories.
1: Mm -hmm. So how did, how were you received? Were you like open arms? Like were people like excited and and willing to talk to you? Was this a really challenging process?
0: I, I, I always joke that everyone's so nice to me at all of those conferences, um, and it's because I, like a good historian, am extraordinarily interested in their own lived experience. I really want to get at the heart of who they are as people, their ideological systems, their religious beliefs, and I just want to know them uh, and what makes them tick, what makes them so passionate about this issue. And I think they could get that sense that I was very interested in who they are and trying to be true to an element of their story um, obviously there's always going to be some kind of my own personal bias, but I really wanted to know who they were and why they were passionate about this.
1: Excellent. Well, okay. So in preparation for this conversation, you sent me an article that you have presented recently at a conference um, and it's a specific case. It's that of Kent Philpot. Am I saying his last name correctly? Yes, you are. Okay. So can you state the name of the article really quick that you're working on? Like whatever working title you have is?
0: Yeah, it's just simply Kent Philpott and the charismatic roots of contemporary conversion therapy.
1: What I've gathered from your article, this is a fascinating read too, and it's a fast, interesting read. He's a minister in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco from the late 60s and 70s. What should people know about Philpot, and how would Philpot describe his religious affiliation?
0: Now, one of the things that I think is fascinating about Kent Philpott, um is that in the late 60s, there is this religious um, moment in which people are looking for, for salvation of some sort. And Philpott is uh, a longstanding fundamentalist, is how he would describe himself, but he is seeing things in Hate ashbury this, this kind of uh, infamous part of San Francisco where hippies and dope addicts and LSD had infiltrated um, <laughs> that he never thought he would see. And as a young man himself, uh, he's influenced by the counterculture of that time in, in, in interesting ways. Uh, he has longer hair. He's oftentimes confused with a hippie, especially because he carries around his acoustic guitar. So he's, he's an interesting character in that uh, I think the popular conception of kind of a street minister. It's kind of what you would see on the edges of the University of Texas campus, which is somebody reading a Bible and they're only reading the parts about damnation and hell. Mm. Here's somebody who looks inviting and he looks like he's part of the counterculture left. And this can provide him an in with many of the people who are flooding into that part of San Francisco at this time, looking for something. They're looking for some kind of self-actualization or realization of what they... They could be, uh, and San Francisco is really the place, and, and Philpott's there for that.
1: Philpott sounds like an interesting character because he sounds like a guy that you would approach thinking that one thing is going to come out of his mouth, and then something completely different comes out.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that.
1: You have some terms that I wanted to clarify, and one of them is same-sex attraction, and then what was the other term that you used? Uh, same-sex desire. Okay, same-sex attraction and same-sex desire. And I'm curious about why you, as the historian and the writer, would use these terms, in what context you would use these terms, what these terms mean, if they're different.
0: Yeah, same-sex attraction is a term that if you are looking at people like Philpott, uh, Joseph Nicolosi, who I've mentioned, and a whole bunch of other uh, conversion therapists, and we should talk about that term too. Sure. Um, they're using same-sex attraction throughout their writings. This is something that you'd find even to the present day. And the word attraction does connote desire and fantasy, and they will acknowledge that. Uh, but for me, attraction is something that they think that they could eliminate. I use same-sex desire because me, desire does connote something that is deeper, that could also be part of one's identity. And that is the influence of uh, queer studies and whatnot on my work.
1: Okay. So going back to Philpot, now that we have a little bit of terms clarified, can you state what conversion therapy actually is? Just sort of define that term before we dive back into Philpot
0: yeah conversion therapy is a a convoluted term the term conversion when it's dealing with sexual orientation change efforts has been there since the beginning and we could trace the beginning to kind of the sexologists of the late 19th century but especially freud freud when uh he is talking about sexual orientation uh change efforts and conversion he does use the German word for conversion. Um, this is important because in the present moment, people who do practice sexual orientation change therapy, therapies say that conversion therapy is a made-up term by LGBTQ activists, who they sometimes call the big, violent gay lobby, hmm. and they, they say it's a political term that, that does not describe what they do. I very much counter that, them with the fact that Freud said this, Freud's intellectual contribution to conversion therapy hangs over the whole, whole entire intellectual history of it. And that even people like Joseph Nicolosi in the late 90s, early 2000s, they were publishing academic articles that used the term conversion therapy. Um, for Philpot, conversion therapy, if we want to go into that, is a religious conversion too. Uh, it doesn't conversion therapy doesn't always have to be a religious conversion, but it is a traditional evangelical born again moment as well.
1: So Philpot, uh, can you specifically state like what his aim is for conversion therapy since he's combining religious conversion and sexual orientation conversion? What is his goal?
0: Now, this is this is a super fascinating part about especially where religious studies and gender and sexuality studies are at the moment. Which is, it is extraordinarily difficult in American historiography, historiography of the United States, to separate sometimes science from religion. Uh, People like Philpott fuse these almost seamlessly into a worldview, a conservative political worldview. And for Philpott, so much of this is a born-again experience, but also the ability to counsel people towards uh, heterosexuality. And his reading of the Bible says that there are only two genders, male and female. There is no third sex, is what one of his books argues. Uh, In fact, that book is called The Third Sex. Uh, God makes people male and female. And within that gendered uh, biblical world, Uh, You must unite with your gender identity. Now, what's really fascinating about this is uh, in the late 60s, throughout the 70s, into the early 80s, you also have psychiatrists who are starting to write a little bit more about the importance of gender identity for its impact on sexual desires. And they're talking in similar, some similar ways. And these uh, people like Philpott must be reading these things. And sometimes you can tell that they are. Um, But they are mentioning that gender is the highest category of analysis, the highest category of being. It's the godly being. And if you realize your natural gendered being, sexuality will follow.
1: Hmm OK. so something else that jumps out at me is your use of the term "charismatic." So Philpott hmm. emphasizes charismatic practices because he, and you write in the article, quote, "observed the transformative healing potential of the charismatic revival." So how does Philpott put charismatic practices to work in his conversion therapy efforts?
0: Yeah, so uh, Philpot talks. Or writes a lot about what he is seeing in Hay Ashbury. And at first, Philpott admits to being extraordinarily skeptical of the charismatic revival uh, and uh, San Francisco as kind of this, this place of religious and, and spiritual experimentation, which I would throw LSD use into the spiritual uh, experimentation that's happening there. Uh, means that there's a lot of, of places to go and, and things to see mm-hmm. in, the, in the hate. And as a street minister who is interested in saving souls, as, as, as one might put it, he, he is seeing these things in, in houses and what we call communes and things like that. And uh, very much kind of matter-of-factly just says, after I saw some of these things, I saw you know, people speaking in tongues i saw a demonic possession of seemingly homosexual beings um so that is what convinced him and and he says these things are alive and well in the modern united states these are not things that are only from days past you know these are these are current events
1: so um what are some other charismatic practices because i'm just you know I'm trying to deepen my own understanding of what charismatic practices even are. Like, what are what? Can you like list some specific charismatic practices for a listener who may be unfamiliar with what this even means?
0: Yeah, uh, charismatic practices, uh, like anything dealing with American religion, can be a diverse array of things.
1: Absolutely, internal and, diversity.
0: And one of the things about the late '60s, early '70s is that a lot of the people who are being swept up in the emotional uh, kind of gravitas of charismatic Christianity are drawn to things like speaking in tongues where the spirit of God or Jesus Christ infiltrates you to the point in which you are incoherent. You are oftentimes babbling. And that, that is a common uh, charismatic practice. Um, so you're being infiltrated by the spirit of the Lord. That, that is a, a big thing. And for conversion therapy, that could be your born again moment. Uh, it, it, this is, once again, highly individualized. Uh, you, you can get firsthand accounts of people saying, that's when I knew that God wanted me to be straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole period of maybe counseling after that, but that's the moment for some of them. I don't, okay. I don't come into, or I haven't really come into contact with certain things that you're fine with in some charismatic elements or movements, like uh, serpents and snakes, and incorporating that into religious practices. Um, So that's just one thing that I haven't come in in contact with. But you do have people talking about a sexual and religious conversion as kind of a miracle, something that's presented as an opportunity after maybe years of suffering from what we would call internalized homophobia. um, That is clearly... The result of a homophobic society that has persecuted gay men, lesbians, bisexuals.
1: Chris, do you think that a good uh, future study for yourself might be to talk to people who believe that who went through conversion therapy and believe that that experience was successful for them in changing their sexual orientation?
0: Well, I do include. I did include them in the dissertation.
1: Interesting,
0: And and I am going to include them in the book. And a lot of that, obviously, is. It's tricky because you are talking about their lived experience, mm-hmm. and as a historian, it would be easier for me to think about. There's there's countless controversies and scandals in the history of conversion therapy. Uh, there was one very recently in South Carolina that was widely reported, where uh, where one of the ministers who had created a network came out as gay and said yeah. he was sorry. Uh, that would be super easy to kind of run what might be called a hit piece, mm-hmm. but I'm I am super fascinated in the people who have seemingly uh, lived what uh, conversion therapists and ex-gay uh, men and women called the gay lifestyle, and the people who l- seemingly live out the rest of their life as a heterosexual straight person.
1: Hmm. Interesting. I'm I'm really excited for your book in that regard because it's just such a fascinating area of discussion. Um, so Philpot, in the article you write about how he eventually begins collaborating with a group who were all ex-gay people, um, mm-hmm. as they called it. Um, who are some of the essential figures to know about? Possibly like what the, like the Love in Action group springs to mm-hmm. mind from the article.
0: Yeah. So Ken Philpot had gone to undergrad and taking psychology coursework, which is where he's able to bring in some of that traditional uh, psychological literature, especially things about family dynamics. And this helps Philpott get a job at the Marin County Counseling Center, which brings him into contact in the same week with, I believe, three, they would describe themselves as homosexual men who are, quote-unquote, struggling with homosexuality. One of them is Frank Worthen, who by that point is in his, his 40s, and he had tried to start his own ministry of sports. And this is the, for me, this is the fascinating thing to talk about this when I go and I talk to uh, younger uh, audiences, especially at colleges and universities, is that Frank Worthen had a tape ministry. He had recorded his own mm. experiences. On cassette tapes. Yeah, he's like the
1: mix-tape, mixtape pastor or something. Yeah,
0: and a lot of younger students, you know, don't, don't don't know what that is. And it's kind of funny, but he put an ad in the newspaper uh, for Brother Frank's ministry in which people could write to him and provide money for the tape so they could hear a testimony, right? And testimony is super important. Uh, for religious conversions, too. You have to testify. You have to sometimes admit your sins. You have to do this. And this is what Frank Worthen is doing. And he's one of these men who come in to meet with Kent Philpot, And the other two men come in. And this is what maybe uh, could be interpreted as one of those miracles that happens within charismatic Christianity. These three men come in in the same week with the same issue. Kent Philpot understands that there is a need for him with these encounters
1: what is um so philpot must have recognized that he had like a limitation in his ability to convert because he couldn't speak from certain experiences is that what it was why he needed other people
0: yeah ultimately philpot comes to the realization by the late 80s that he might not be the best person to lead this charge and uh, if you think about, a lot of people only want to identify identity politics with the far left, but uh, this is a similar thing. Mm. Only people who have been through this struggle can help people who are going through this struggle. Is is where he comes comes out. But that's after a decade of being one of the founders and leaders of. You mentioned Love and Action, which is a residential. Uh, ministry. They have houses in which people can live together and have kind of an accountability system, in order interesting, to, in order to make sure that you know they are reading the Bible at night, having Bible breaks and study groups, and also uh, not going out and uh, experiencing promiscuous San Francisco.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Um, so something I'm curious about is like uh, the biblical justification for the efforts that these folks were going through these conversion therapists, why they were going to all this trouble. Um, Are there any like important biblical verses that conversion therapists were well known to use within their practices?
0: Yeah, there, there are a bunch of of different verses that even to this day, people will point out as key uh, parts of, of the text that show in their mind that homosexuality is a sin. And so you get parts of Leviticus, um, particularly the phrase, you shall not lie with a male, as with a woman, is an abomination. And that's a very, especially for a fundamentalist, a person who's trying to read the Bible as literally as possible, that is really a key um, phrase as well as another part of Leviticus. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. You know that is a very much a, a fire and brimstone sure verse. And then obviously they point to things like Sodom and Gomorrah, which for them has a very literal interpretation. They view. Uh, this as a prohibition on non-procreative sexual acts and that God punishes um, this this ancient um, place because there's anal and oral sex between men, right? But there are non, there are interpretations of Sodom and Gomorrah that go very far away from that, that say that uh, this occurs because it's inhospitable inhospitable place. Um, so you get a lot of different, uh, kind of theological and religious wrangling over some parts of, of the Bible that uh, some people think is really set in stone and other people are like, no, this is, this is very open for interpretation.
1: Interesting, okay. Um, well, in Philpott, um, a quote that he wrote jumped out at me and he wrote that he leaned toward the concept that a person becomes a homosexual they are made, not born. If they were born that way, there would be no hope, but we know there is hope. So he wrote that in 1975. Um, and I'm curious how that quote has aged over time because um, so many things have happened since then in the realms of sexual justice and uh, medical and psychological and um, you know neuroscience research. How, uh, w- what can you say to that?
0: Yeah, this once again is part of his psychological training. The idea that one's environment, especially their family dynamics, are extraordinarily important for who they become, their gender and sexual development, is very Freudian and neo-Freudian, and this is where uh, you know that idea is coming from. But this is also a super pervasive idea across American society. Mm. You know, I, I like to joke that we're in the age of Foucault. Uh, you know, <laughs> to grad school, everyone has to read Foucault. But so much of the <laughs> yeah. 20th century, so much of the 20th century, especially that earlier like Cold War period, it's the age of Freud. You know, Dagmar Hursag has this wonderful book called Cold War Freud, where, where she, she talks about this. But this is, this is an idea that is so culturally resonant that there is no way People didn't understand this. People are talking about editus complex and you know, all of this stuff as part of normal conversation in a lot of ways that we would talk about certain concepts today. And um, so the environment, people are becoming gay, uh, quote unquote, because of faulty family dynamics, either you know, there's the overbearing mother trope that is super popular. Um, from the '40s into the, even the '80s, uh, the weak, ineffectual father who's not, you know, home or he's working too much or he doesn't discipline—these are these are popular cultural ideals that Philpot is clearly incorporated into his intellectual and religious worldview.
1: Was there any evidence that you stumbled across in your readings? where Philpot was forced to confront an alternative to that position? Like, people who did have, like, what he would say is whatever acceptable family structure, and the person was gay. Like, did he ever have to confront the alternative to his view of the family structure?
0: I've never come across Philpott uh, encountering these people. And Philpott, who is actually still alive, is um, oh. a little bit older, but... Um, and runs a blog, a fairly active blog, um, which I read occasionally, Mm -hmm. but, um, the people who are MDs, who somebody like Charles Saccharides, who, um, is, is a a well-known therapist and, and very much a leader in this. People confront him all the time saying, you know, I had this loving relationship with with my parents they've supported me I played football and did all the super masculine things I was supposed to and I was just a super masculine gay dude it is kind of how they're doing it. these things aren't as cut and dry as sometimes you're making them and that's very much a, a very big critique that grows in the 70s as Phil Potts writing and groups like P flag parents and families of lesbians and gays starts to pick up steam and Uh, You know those parents who are very active uh, in the gay rights movement. They're saying I did everything right with my kid I should not feel ashamed because you uh, have this psychiatric theory. That's only that. It's only a theory It does not work out for everyone
1: So Philpott believes there was like an element of choice Involved when it came to same-sex attractions like acting on it is different than not acting on it um are there any people or groups or denominations that are, you know, prominent today in American religion that still teach this notion of choice and same-sex attraction?
0: You can definitely see an element of choice in certain mainstream religious institutions and organizations that are trying their best to distance themselves from conversion therapy, but they only go so far. So the Catholic church um, oftentimes talks about how you have the choice to commit a sin or not, um, but we're going to love you if you want to struggle through this. And, and the Catholic church is, is fascinating in that in that regard. And they still have uh, counseling organizations uh, that are, not only in the united states but in central and south america the organization is called courage and they've had official connections to different dioceses throughout this um, the latter day saints have a long and trouble history with conversion therapy with byu being a center of uh not only talk therapy which is the most prevalent kind um, but also experiments with electroshock therapy, which is a kind of, uh, of sexual orientation change therapy. And they're really struggling, despite uh, official proclamation that they don't support this anymore, they're really struggling with what it means to be Mormon and have same-sex desires. Hmm. So okay. there's this idea of choice that's there. But I do want to point out that uh, you had mentioned neuroscience and gene studies uh, uh, in a previous question. There is also an element of the general umbrella term gay rights movement that believes sexuality is a choice, especially when we're talking about what could be described as radical feminists in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, especially women who were in extraordinarily abusive relationships with men, who will very much declare that they chose their sexuality. They chose to be lesbians. They chose to be attracted to women because their experiences with men were so horrible. And you can find those documents uh, pretty readily of, of women uh, declaring a choice over their sexuality. And that idea and that notion has not been very prominent uh, politically because there's something about the gene studies that is so convincing for people, uh, especially the idea of being born that way, that politically... And legally being born that way is so much more advantageous than talking
1: about sexuality as a choice. Mm. So much to read. Um, <laughs> so, speaking of reading, a Bible question that I just sprung to me. So, going back to the Bible really quick. So, like, um, I'm reading in your article about the his 1975 book Philpot's 1975 book Third Sex question mark, which you brought up earlier. So. And Philpot writes in this book that he and his conversion therapy counselors would carefully examine Bible passages concerning homosexuality with the homosexual. I'm curious if you came across any information of what this careful examination looked like. So say that Philpot or a counselor is sitting in a room with somebody they're doing therapy with and they have the Bible there. What does this, con- what is this careful examination of these passages look like?
0: Well, it's it's looking at some of the things that I mentioned earlier passages and being like well, there is no other way around this. So let's let's really look at what these passages say. Having a fundamentalist or a little re- interpretation of those um, for Philpot and especially for early love and action, I write in in this article that you know it is like a Bible study group, and so they're really if anyone it's been part of a Bible study group, you really dive in deep Mm -hmm. and you really focus on certain parts of this. And, uh, Philip, very clear that, uh, for people who are interpreting Sodom and Gomorrah different ways, like Troy Perry of the Metropolitan Community Church and, and and his followers, they're very much going to be like, that interpretation is wrong and here is why.
1: Mm, Okay. So, when do gay affirming churches start popping up on Philpot's radar? Like, when does that start? When when does pushback start happening? And
0: so, gay affirmative churches uh, happen and start popping up in the late '60s, and I believe Metropolitan Community Church is organized in either 1967 or 1968, and this becomes the widest spread gay affirming church. But even as early as 1969, you have Catholic groups that are never going to be officially sanctioned by diocese or the vatican um pop up and the group's title for the the catholic group's title is dignity and they're still a very active organization so you can start to see the impact of especially queer liberation gay liberation and it's more radical elements of that awaken people's uh, feelings to want to be prideful they want to be uh, proud of their sexual uh, orientation or sexuality and obviously that extends from uh, black is beautiful and and the civil rights struggles, uh, especially kind of the black nationalism pride that that is such an influence on so many left leaning or um, movements at that time too and so you get this influence of gay affirming churches and organizations in the 60s and 70s that uh, have uh, only grown over time.
1: Hmm. Okay, how does Philpot respond to gay-affirming churches who maybe have been critiquing his methods or other conversion therapies? How do they respond to gay-affirming churches who are critiquing them?
0: Well, they have the response would be that they have misinterpreted the Bible and they're only reading it with uh, their own agenda in mind. Hmm. And one of the interesting things that Um, A lot of people, when they ask me what I'm researching, a lot of people pigeonhole me in the thing that they want this project to be. So Mm -hmm. it's either I'm a historian of sexuality or I'm only a historian of religion and conservatism. And what I'm really interested in is where these uh, elements intersect and where they battle and and how they get in uh, conflicts or have resolutions if they ever have any. And one of the interesting things is uh, until very recently the scholarship had uh said that it had not interrogated the religious lives of the sexually variant right but uh another part of this is you can't get the full picture unless if you understand what's happening with the conversion therapists and you're how uh really interacting with people who are in the metropolitan community church dignity. i think affirmation is the latter-day saint group and how they are engaging each other in a war of ideas and, and it really is a war over what the Bible and God say about sexuality. And they're always engaging with each other on this.
1: Okay. Well, you know, I have another question about gender as well, because gender plays a role in your article about Philpot and another piece that you've written as well. And I gather that Philpot argues that women conversion therapy counselors were not effective. Why does he believe that?
0: Yeah, so this is, this is part of the... Other element of the the fundamentalist reading of the Bible and and how people are reading the Bible for gender norms. And Philpott is very clear that women therapists and counselors can help both men and women who are quote unquote struggling with sexual homosexuality at first. But ultimately, is the role of the patriarch to lead all to salvation? And only the patriarch, only the man can do that, both for men and women. Philpott is interesting in this, uh, in that not everyone agrees um, on this. This is a very diverse uh, range of ideas over who is best to counsel people for conversion therapy. You get later Joseph Nicolosi, who says, as a man, I am best to counsel men. I know how to model masculinity, oftentimes really traditional masculinity. Some people would call it toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, I am the best one who can do that. I can be a good role model. And, and I am the only one who can do that. And you have women therapists saying, I'm the only one who can model femininity for uh, the, these, these women counselees. And so people do split on this. But Philpott, uh, at least in the 70s, says a man is the only one who can model of the God-given patriarchal norms that we must follow as a society.
1: Well, and then you, you, uh, you profile another figure in another article that you wrote for Quarterly Horse, which you actually have pinned on your Twitter page right now, about a woman named Leanne Payne and her views on insufficient gender identity. How does that fit into this discussion, Payne's story?
0: Yeah, this is very much tied to what Philpott is starting to understand in the mid-70s, which is he's prioritizing gender identity as the most important thing and everything else follows from that. And Leanne Payne and also a British uh, theologian by the name of Elizabeth Moberly, they start to talk about not only these God-given gender roles, but they talk about how do you enact or what we might even call perform traditional notions of gender, g- gender roles. And they, they are very, very clear that in order for these same-sex desires to be eliminated, a uh, woman who might be influenced by the feminist movement and wears trousers or jeans must give that up for uh, blouses and flowy dresses, right? These kind of things that we might laugh at but are super important in the face of what we might call second wave feminism. And and it's uh, what they might interpret as its erosion of uh, traditional norms.
1: Mm. What was your experience like reading Third Sex and other books written by conversion therapists in the 1970s? As a historian yourself living in 2019, where gay marriage is the law of the land and sexual orientation justice is making huge strides um, throughout all its challenges, but nonetheless towards equality,
0: yeah, there's a, bun- there's a bunch of different uh, cliched terms for being a historian, <laughs> like the past is a foreign country and all of those. And one of the historian
1: jokes, I love it
0: yeah and one of the the fascinating parts about reading these books is that once you get an understanding of a general worldview they're somewhat easy to scam um, and they become very repetitive you know it's it's a creation of an ideology or a continuation of an ideology and it's i i've Grown used to it as somebody who, you know, is five years in trying to understand this. But I do remember, do remember times being horrified. And one of the, the things that most upset me was my first archival visit. And it was at the University of North Texas. And I was in this one folder that was talking about the AIDS crisis. And I found that there were these traveling ministries or groups that would go into AIDS wards to try to convert um, especially men dying mm. on, on their on their deathbed and for me that that was the most emotional thing I've ever done because if if I'm being a good historian I'm trying to think. Uh, in with my 1984 hat on right mm-hmm. which is year of my birth so you know the, the AIDS epidemic is a historic event for for a, a lot of America at this moment um, at this present moment I'm thinking what were these men thinking and oftentimes they're thinking that God's smiting them too they lived in a cultural and religious world where they had learned this and here comes this minister who wants to, or is saying that they want to save them and, and try to ensure their place in heaven? They just need to be born again. That to me was the most emotional element is thinking about the coercion and, and the, des- the desperation on people laying in the hospital beds and what that was, was going to do to people's psyche. And for me, that I got angry and I had to go walk around. Like that, that was the most emotional response I've, I've had. Yes, mm. yes.
1: You just mentioned the early 1980s, and a lot of things change for Philpott um, and his methods in that time period. Uh, And way back in the start of this conversation, you mentioned the family values political conservatism that rose in the 1980s. Um, How does the rise of family values political conservatism change conversion therapy methods or usage in society? How does that change things in the 80s that... um, you know, transitions to a new sort of phase or era.
0: Yeah, uh, I very much argue in the dissertation and then the book um, manuscript that the charismatic practices that are uh, somewhat popular in in the 70s that Kent Philpott is drawn to, and and Leanne Payne is as well, um, she's drawn to certain things. Uh, that are charismatic healing methods like uh, the use of holy water, which Protestants normally don't use holy <laughs> water uh, in, in their rituals. Um, those fall by the wayside. And you can see this by the, by the early 70s. There's uh, an element that the charismatic movement is not modern-day Protestantism and that in order for this kind of counseling for sexual orientation change counseling to have a greater impact and have greater influence these charismatic elements must be kind of washed away and even at the first um, meeting of what's called exodus international ultimately which is this umbrella group of ex-gay ministers and counseling groups and professional psychologists and psychiatrists ultimately they are starting to push away from some of these charismatic uh, practices, and they're trying to become more within this family values political coalition that is also simultaneously fighting for political power. And I also argue that conversion therapy, and I said this at the beginning, becomes such a key issue for uh, uniting, not only evangelicals, but Catholics and and some Orthodox Jewish groups and Latter-day Saints. and they're they're they are fighting for legitimacy in in the face of the gay rights movement at this point in time
1: and then you mention um in that the sexual orientation change efforts conversion therapy efforts have grown politically unpopular over the last fifty years. And I know that, um, you know, a lot of towns and states have banned these practices. Uh, the town where I lived for a long time, Columbia, Missouri, recently was in the news um, for a bunch of uh, town residents who went and, you know, advocated for a ban on conversion therapy within the city. Um, are there any major turning points where support for these efforts has like substantially decreased or increased over the last couple decades?
0: This is a a really fascinating question. I think that it's a super important thing to examine, uh, just how fast gay rights and the support for gay rights has grown, especially over the past 20 years. I even remember being an undergrad from 2002 to 2006, Mm -hmm. where arguments about gay marriage are are really rife. And there are, gay marriage is also super unpopular uh, to the point where even in 2008, Barack Obama, if I remember correctly, does not come out fully for, for gay marriage and mm. kind of drags his feet, right? And I think so much of this, and there's so much work to try to parse the amount of evidence that we have and figure it out. Uh, this is one of the complex things of being a historian of the 20th and 21st century is we just have so much information yeah. <laughs> and trying to figure out what the heck is going on. <laughs> is fascinating. is But the gene studies that I mentioned earlier and thinking about being born that way is such an important idea for efforts to ban conversion therapy. So one of their hashtags is born perfect. You know, that gets at such that gets at the idea of the gene studies and and how important it is to have it what would be called an immutable characteristic, something that is in your genes. But some would some people would say God given too. God values sexual variance.
1: Mm. So something that I'm curious about is that, you know, people are conversion therapists like for a living, right? Like this is how people, some people, pay the bills by doing conversion therapy. Correct?
0: Yeah, they they do other different kinds of counseling, um, but for some people, this is a big part of what they do.
1: Well, because I would imagine that states and towns who are banning these efforts are going to put some people out of business. So I'm curious if you know anything about how the. Uh, local and state bans are being challenged because people who do this like as a career might be you know pushing back
0: there are some examples of people leaving certain states so there are some counselors who have left california for existence or for example because uh, their primary breadwinning activities was a form of of sexual orientation change efforts and that was a big part of them So uh, Texas is is a place where some people have gone, uh, and so you get to see this movement uh, of, of literal locations that people are moving in order to continue to, you know, pay the bills.
1: Hmm. Have Philpott or any other conversion therapy advocates from your work uh, denounced any of their former conversion therapy works? Have anybody like changed their mind on what they 've done? I know that you mentioned earlier one sample that happened recently. Are, are there any other prominent examples of people who change their mind and condemn what they 've previously done?
0: You get a whole host of people who change their mind on on sexual orientation change efforts. people who are practicing. These at the, what would be the heyday within the professional medical world in the 50s and 60s, you got a whole bunch of people who changed their mind, obviously, in the 70s. And in 1973, there's a, a big, big ruling uh, in the American Psychiatric Association to remove homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statist- Statistical Manual, which is the Book of Mental Disorders, uh, which changes a lot of people's minds. It's a little more complex than that, but it does change a lot of people's minds about this. Uh, But you also have people who who would describe themselves as ex-gay, who become counselors or ministers in this, who abandon this because their sexual desires for the same sex are so strong. They're really fighting something that is so innately part of them. And you do have even the founders of the group Exodus International uh, that I mentioned. Uh, two of them admit that they're in love uh, and become very prominent uh, opponents to especially religious-based uh, conversion efforts. You have a whole bunch of people uh, that, you know, a, whole, a bunch of different scandals in the 80s as AIDS uh, kind of gives new life to conversion therapy that that are used kind of in the what we would call the culture wars. And in the 90s and early 2000s, you also have this really interesting case with a man named John Polk, who is kind of the front, uh, front spokesperson for Focus on the Family, James Dobson's group, who had talked about how the sexual orientation change efforts worked for him that actually uh, gone and Frank Worthen was his his counselor. He had mm. gone to um, San Rafael, California, lived in one of these houses. That's where he met his wife, Ann Palk. Uh, and he ultimately gets caught um, by uh, somebody named Wayne Besson, who was part of the human rights campaign, who photographs him in a Washington, D.C. gay bar called Mr. Peace mm. and becomes this big scandal as part of like really – the vitriolic cultural wars that, you know, are defining the nineties and, and the aunts. And so you have these continual things and, uh, Park has, you know, he's come out, he's divorced his, his ex-wife, um, who's still very active in, in the sexual orientation change um, community ministry world. Uh, so you, you have these countless people who have, who have, literally come out and mm. in multiple ways and said that they regret what they've done.
1: Do you have a uh, timeline for this book release? If you can divulge any information, do you have a goal?
0: Uh, the university of Chicago press, which is my, my, my press for this book. Uh, and I have, I have a, a aimed goal, but uh, I also have a bunch of, of research fellowships that i have not used yet uh, including my my latest one was um a new york public library a three-month fellowship um that's actually i believe financially supported for by and also paid for by uh, martin duberman who is a pioneer in in queer studies and wrote a book about his own experience in various different forms of conversion therapy so I have to do some more research and then I can uh, be done with it. I've, I, I've been to, I think, 34, 35 different archives. Um, I've been blessed with a project that people are super fascinated by. And that um, I think is, is generally an important topic in this moment in time.
1: Absolutely. In the meantime, uh, I know you have some pieces out. Where can people find you and your work if they want to know more in the meantime?
0: Yeah, I post everything on my own website, which is just my name, Chris Babbitts, B-A-B-I-T-S dot com. And it's under a tab called Engage Scholar, and I have public history writings. And everything there is... Uh, Except for maybe the Washington Post piece is not behind a paywall, I believe in open access as much as one's career in academia allows it. And if there is something behind a paywall, people can email me and I'm more than happy to send them a text or the text of it.
1: Well, Dr. Chris Babbitts, I am really glad that we are finally able to make this conversation happen. I'm just thrilled to have you and your work featured on Classical Ideas podcast. And it's just wonderful to have you here, sir. Thank
0: you so much, Greg. It was wonderful.
1: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed. By Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at Outlook.com. or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Oh,